Awesome. All right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a class about reactive attachment disorder. I am Renee Bernhardt. I am the founder of Foster Source. My husband and I were foster parents. And when we stopped fostering, we wanted to do something to make that experience a little bit softer for everyone involved. Our focus is actually to pour services into the foster parent so they can foster better and foster longer. We're thrilled to have you with us today with the RAD Advocates. I've known the ladies from RAD Advocates since the beginning of my foster parenting journey. Um, we fostered together, actually, and the work that they're doing is so important. This is really important that you have this class. It will make a huge, huge difference in your fostering experience. Um, real quick, just a reminder for our foster parents in Colorado, and if one of the interns could type these in the chat, I'd appreciate it. Fostersource.org slash requests is where you can request things like weighted blankets, diapers, um, car seats, bunk beds, mattresses. We have a great relationship with Mattress Firm where they let us buy mattresses at cost. Fostersource.org slash therapy is where you can submit a request to be matched with a therapist for you. It is very important that you focus on your mental health during COVID and anytime you're fostering. We started that programming during COVID. It will remain an ongoing branch of our services. There is no cost to you. Fostersource.org slash respite is where you can submit a respite request. So far, all we're doing with respite is we post what you need, when you need it, what city, the kids' ages and genders, and normally another foster parent pops in and helps. That is something we are really focusing on to expand to a better format. But for now, we're happy to at least do that for you. Um, Again, feel free to chat throughout the class in the chat below, either directly with someone or through the, through, with the whole group. If you have questions for the presenters, please submit them in the Q&A and we will ask them on your behalf to the presenters. You can also ask them anonymously. The uh, class is not over today until you have entered the verification code. We will say the code audibly. It will be shown on screen and we will type it in the chat. Lindsay from our team will walk you through finding your certificate. There's a short survey afterwards uh, before you can access your certificate. This really helps us guys. We want our programming to be what you want and what you need. Your feedback helps us tweak our programming to be exactly what you need. And it also helps us explain to funders why it's important to support the parents as well. Um, so thank you to Rad Advocates for joining us and I will um, give it over to them. I think Heather's gonna share her screen and we will get started. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Great. Well, thank you very much. We're really glad to be here. It's really a blessing uh, to be able to have this platform to present. As Renee said, we were all previous foster parents ourselves, and so we know what it's like to uh, have workers in and out of your home, kids, you know, that whole debate, do we clean our house before our cert worker comes or don't we? <laughs> you know, we, we know what that's like. Um, my name is Amy Vantine. I am the founder of Rad Advocates. I was a foster parent, but prior to being a foster parent, I worked as uh, a case aide. I worked as a residential counselor in a group home. 
I worked as a mentor for foster children. So I had a lot of background experience and I thought that I knew RAD. Uh, I worked with children and thought, oh yeah, I am skilled and I know what I'm doing. Um, that changed very quickly when we had a RAD child enter our home through fostering. Uh, so we walked that journey for a total of five to six years with this child. We uh, fostered and then we adopted uh, and our lives were turned upside down. And what I recognized right away was that what I was experiencing in my home was very different than what all the professionals thought that they thought that I was experiencing. Their perspective of what I was experiencing was completely skewed. There was nothing um, that I could do to try to educate them on what we were experiencing. So once my family was stable and we decided that we had to do something, we had to create a change for children who are suffering with this disorder that are going to be supporting them and um, trying to help them to develop to become young adults and to thrive. So that's where Rad Advocates came to be. And that's a little bit of my story. And, uh, and Heather, do you want to go ahead and, and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Heather House, and I too was a foster parent before I uh, adopted. I also had two older biological children and similar to Amy, I figured those kids are turning out pretty good. I must be an okay parent. So I can help this child who needs a home and had absolutely no clue what I was getting into and also saw things happening in my house that even others in my house didn't see and for sure people outside of home didn't see. So uh, it was kind of confusing for a really long time. I thought I was losing my mind. And about nine years in, we got our rad diagnosis and that put me on a journey to being able to find treatment that was appropriate for our son and I stumbled upon rad advocates while crying out on social media for help and once we got our family stable I reached out to Amy and just said I gotta help what can I do this is crazy and here I am <laughs> I think that's it <laughs> and then Beth I I am Beth with Red Advocates. I um, have a social work degree and I've always worked with kids my whole life. Um, I was a residential treatment counselor at an RTC here locally many, many years ago. I've been working with special needs parents for over 25 years um, and advocating for all, all kinds of special needs kids. And in the last 17 years, I've been advocating for foster and adoptive parents um, shortly after my daughter came to us 17 years ago. So at this time, I'm also a case manager for children with special needs. So I've got a pretty extensive history. What we've found with raising a kiddo with RAD is that it's, it's a totally different ballgame. So when I met Amy, shortly before RAD Advocates was found, um, I linked arms with her and, and just said, you know, we, we have to do something more. So thank you for joining us today. Alrighty. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how this disorder is developed. 
Now, obviously we have just a short period of time today, and this is a very complex disorder. And so just understand that this is just surface level stuff. Um, we would need days, months, years to really dive into all the different complexities of this disorder. So we're gonna to try to do the best that we can and sum it up for you. I will say that um, there is a part two to this uh, program, this presentation, My Child Has Rad, Now What? And we will offer that uh, next semester. So start with today's and then we'll get deeper, do a deeper dive next term. Great, thank you, Renee. So here is the cycle of the securely attached cycle. This is, um, this is the very foundation of all of us of when we were born. This is the foundation that's going to set the stage for our relationships and our social and emotional and cognitive development moving forward. This is this, this is the stage that a lot of treating professionals forget to look back at when looking at children with reactive attachment disorder. So it is very important to understand the securely attached cycle. Uh, you know, there's, there's a baby, and this, this really can be from a newborn, you know, up to two, three years old, this cycle still continues for attachment. So when the baby is at rest, everything's fine. When the baby is hungry or needs a diaper change, is, is experiencing some sort of need or discomfort, obviously they cry and that's how they're gonna let you know, hey, I need your help, please come help me. The mother or the caregiver then responds to the baby. You know, they make eye contact, skin on skin, tries to soothe the baby. That then helps the baby to calm down and it's actually developing trust in the baby while the brain is developing that the baby can trust the people around them to meet their needs. And with that, that's when the emotional, social emotional pieces of the brain are being developed, the cognitive parts of the brain are being developed. It is such a crucial time that this connection of that attachment cycle continues to go. And it, it, it sets the foundation for the child's whole future, really. When that attachment cycle is not smooth or uh, disrupted, then we have our disturbed attachment cycle. When the baby's at rest, the baby then has the need, the baby is crying, please help me, I'm hungry, or I'm uncomfortable, I'm hot, I'm cold. If the mother or primary caregiver does not respond, the baby's gonna just keep crying. It'll protest louder, hey, I'm here, please help me. If the mother responds with anger or resentment or doesn't respond at all, then that baby's eventually going to give up and going to quit crying. The needs are not being met. This is changing the actual brain development of the child. And that cycle will just continue. So with, with being foster parents, obviously you guys have stepped up to the role of helping children who come from hard places, whatever that hardship may be. So you can see within this cycle with a lot of the families that foster parents support and come in to help, you could see where this disturbed attachment cycle could have been in play, uh, whether if it's um, 
biological mother and father are drug addicts. You know, a lot of times drugs will make people do things that, that they normally wouldn't do and neglecting the baby or having anger at the baby because they're stressed within themselves and they can't stop the, the crying baby from crying. There's just a lot of different things that go into play on that attachment cycle when we have uh, parents that are not in a healthy place themselves. Uh, this can also occur. You can go ahead, Heather. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. This can also occur too in utero. So when the baby is in utero, they are getting a lot of those hormones and stuff as well that are sending signals to the developing brain in the utero of is the baby wanted, uh, is is the mother meeting all of her, her own physical and mental health needs while she's pregnant? That is all transferred into the baby in utero. So um, it, it does not take long for that attachment to be disrupted. There, there is no study at this time that I'm aware of that shows exactly when this disorder is developed. It can be anywhere from utero to age three to five, depending on uh, what website you're looking at. Uh, so what is reactive attachment disorder? In a nutshell, the child you know, is enabled to form loving, lasting relationships. So that goes back to that beginning stage of attachment, sets the tone for your relationships and your mental health. They're not able to give or receive love and affection. Now, this may seem confusing because some of you may say, oh, I know somebody with reactive attachment disorder, and trust me, they give love and affection. Uh, I'm sure they do. However, a lot of that is probably not genuine. That is part of the disorder, and we'll get into that a little bit later of, um, of how they learned for their survival skill to act as though there's love and affection involved. Um, they develop a lack of consciousness and, and distrusting of others, of course. You know, if they're an infant and they were crying because they were uncomfortable and hungry and their need was not met, they're not going to trust. And, uh, and, and these difficulties, this disorder is a continuum. This is as a spectrum, just like autism or something else would be. You have everything from the mild range all the way to severe. Now, more on the mild range, I would consider that to be more of an attachment issue. Uh, that's where, obviously, trauma occurred at some point in the child's life where they learned to distrust. A disorder, however, is going to be more of that brain development. Uh, attachment issues are very different than a, a disorder, and I just want to make that clear uh, it, it really depends on the brain development of that. Uh, so this is from the Mayo Clinic and the Oxford Development Center. Reactive attachment disorder is a serious condition. Sorry, I have a sticky note I need to move. In which an infant or young child does not establish healthy attachments with parents or caregivers. RAD may develop if the child's basic needs for comfort and affection and nurturing are not met and loving, caring, stable attachments with their caregivers are not established. We also put on here developmental trauma. There's a movement right now where 
professionals and parents are trying to get the DSM uh, diagnosis changed for reactive attachment disorder to be developmental trauma disorder. Um, now for RAD, it may be called complex developmental trauma disorder, but we also want to make you aware of this because as you have children coming in and out of your home, it may not be listed as RAD as part of their um, diagnosis, but also look for developmental trauma disorder. That's, that's going to be huge. And you can see again on, on that, that it talks about uh, the, the symptoms of that. And again, it goes back to that attachment and not able to, to attach to their primary caregiver. So there are some statistics that we have looked at, obviously all being parents with reactive attachment disorder and feeling isolated in parenting children with this. Uh, we, we start researching, we start going out to, to figure out how can we help our children. And the first thing that we all hear is how rare it is. I think all rad parents can attest to at some point, some professional <laughs> told them, oh, it's so rare, that's not your child. Well, in the statistics that we found uh, gathered by the U.S. government, it shows that eight out of 10 children raised in an environment with early trauma in their early years could be affected by this disorder. Now, remember, being foster parents, these are the children that you're taking who are having the early trauma. So then the statistics went on to say that one out of every 10 of these children will not be able to function emotionally normally. Those are the kiddos probably with the severe reactive attachment disorder. So if you think about that in our general population, it is rare. Given all the people, it is rare. But in the population that you are working with as foster parents, it is not rare. It shows that another study showed that 40% of foster children in the range of 6 to 18 believed to suffer or believed to suffer from an attachment disorder. And those are probably the ones that are diagnosed. It oftentimes really does not go get a diagnosis until well into later of the teen years where uh, year after year, the behaviors keep escalating, all therapies have tried, been tried. And when there is no improvements, that's usually when the disorder comes. I think Heather tapped into that in her introduction that you know, nine years later, she received the diagnosis, which is really unfortunate because that could have been nine years of taking treatment for the disorder very differently and maybe could have had healing earlier on. So why we talk about that it's rare in the general population, I want you to think about this. The same percentage of children that are considered to be diagnosed with RAD is also the same percentage of people <clears throat> with red hair. So think of, think of how many people you know with red hair or that you see with red hair out in the community. Um, so it's not as common, but it's, it's out there. And so I, I hope that when you see redheads, you'll start to think, oh, okay, RAD is not as rare as we want to, to believe that it is. 
um, especially as foster parents, just really be aware of it uh, for the, the children that you're bringing into your home because it is you guys that is also going to set the stage for these children to have healing. And you are the front runners. You're the front liners that's going to see these behaviors uh, before the caseworker, before the therapist, before anybody. You guys will be the ones to see these behaviors. And so we are hoping to bridge that gap and train about reactive attachment disorder. So when you start going to the professional saying, hey, as a foster parent, I see some concerns that they're gonna know what RAD is too uh, from the in-home perspective and that they're gonna be able to help work with you to develop uh, a treatment plan to help these kiddos heal. Okay, so talking about symptoms of RAD in infants and toddlers, as Amy and I both said, well, I don't know that I discussed my children's ages, but our kids were a little bit older. So we'll go through some of this and I'm gonna defer to Beth because her child came to her as an infant. But if you get an infant and you're seeing like, they're never seeking comfort, they're showing you no response to anything you do, kind of that blank face and they could have a soiled diaper and you would never know. That's kind of a concerning symptom. Um, you'll see them kind of watching others, but never engaging as they get older. And then uh, needing help. So they won't really ask you for help. They'll kind of just stumble along on their own and, um, you know, not, not get help or, or not even maybe know how to take it when you are offering assistance. And then they, really won't reach out to you to pick them up. Um, they don't play those interactive games that we all play with our kids, you know, peekaboo and, and hiding and things like that. And then um, usually you don't see a lot of smiles from them or they're kind of listless. Um, and I think Beth can jump in here about the appearances and the listlessness. Right. So my daughter came to us at six months old and we were her first placement straight from literally her parents' arms. Um, human services had her for about two hours before they showed up with us. And when she first came in, it was very obvious from the moment I saw her that she was very small. Her head was misshapen. She was not giving good eye contact. She wasn't smiling and interacting typically. She was extremely reserved and listless. She would watch us from the other side of the room like a hawk. It was like daggers in your back and watching every single move you made. But as soon as you started to exchange with her and try to interact with her, she would immediately dart her eyes away and go very stoic. Um, we called her face plastic because it was almost like she was disappearing within herself. And she was, she was dissociating. She was literally checking out of what was going on when we were trying to interact with her. She did not cry for her needs to be met. And she would either whimper very mildly or she would scream out of control, inconsolable. And this went on for months, if not years. So that was the very first sign that we saw. And then going forward, you start to see things. Um, I always say the extreme need for control is probably the biggest one that I now look back and see um, as one of the most prevalent behaviors in the toddlers and the older children. And they usually um, don't trust the 
adults that they're with. And, and that might not be as easy to recognize, but you kind of get it like, you'll keep saying, you know, like, I have this, I'll get this for you. And you have to keep reassuring them. Uh, sometimes they're hostile. They're usually very manipulative. You may not catch that right off the bat because you think, oh, they don't know how to handle our household or there's something different. But if you add all these together, that will be kind of what you're looking for and the symptoms that you'd probably see. Absolutely no empathy or remorse that's genuine when they are in trouble for something. Uh, they, they show like they don't have any conscience or compassion if they've hurt someone. Again, that kind of goes right into their inability to give or receive love. And if you look back at their infancy, they never were, they never got love. They never received affection properly. So therefore, how would they know how to give it? Um, usually, if you're trying to guide them and, and show them like, you'll take care of them, they're trying to uh, resist that. They don't want you to nurture them. They want to be like, I'm on my own type of thing. And the biggest one is the to me is the lack of cause and effect thinking. I can't tell you the number of times I wrote if blank, then blank on my child's mirror to say like, answer this question. If I blank, then I blank and clueless. Like if I don't do my chores, then I don't get to play a game or whatever. And clearly right out the door. Like it didn't matter. I think my, my friends thought it was totally crazy for writing that on his mirror, but it's a big, huge thing with them. And then they, they'll seem to provoke anger in others and you won't necessarily see something physical that they're doing. And like Beth said, kind of the daggers in your, in your back. I remember my son staring. I used to tell my husband, he's just staring at me at dinner, like watch him. And as soon as I would look at him, his eyes would dart away and he'd be looking at something else. And I'm like, it is so creepy. This kid is just staring at me. And you just don't, it, it doesn't, it just makes you angry and you can't really see it. Other people don't see it happening. Um, they'll try to argue just excessively. I always say it kind of turns into that who's on first, what's on second type of scenario where you'll ask a question and they'll give you some answer that is kind of related to your question, but a little bit to this, to the side, if you will. So then you engage with the other issue that the child brought up and pretty soon you're not getting any answers to the initial issue and they've run you around in a circle as to what happened and it'll be something that sounded like legit until you stop and think about it later and you're like that that didn't answer my question at all um <clears throat> that's kind of their mo to not get their um not get you to get into them attached to them or, or be able to relate to them Always outside, they're superficially, I won't say always, not always, but usually outside of your home, they're superficially charming, they're engaging, you could probably take them to someone's house, and they would tell you what wonderfully well-behaved children they are, um, and, and they are that for the other people, and then they'll have trouble sometimes making eye contact or low self-esteem, which I would notice that my child would have that a little bit at other people's houses, but when you're outside of your home, everyone would just say, well, he's just nervous. He's not comfortable with us yet. <clears throat> and now I look back and think, well, wait till he gets comfortable with you. <laughs> but um, they would then be very indiscriminately compassionate and affectionate with strangers. Um, showing some kids just run up and hug random strangers and, and you, you'll realize that, well, that doesn't happen at home, but it's happening outside the home. And then kind of going along with the arguing excessively is the extremely convincing after um, an innocent wrongdoing. 
it is one of those things our therapist showed us. She would do this. She would put something in her hand and it'd be, she'd go, this is a candy wrapper. Why did you eat the candy? I didn't eat the candy. I'm not eating the candy. I didn't steal it. And it's like the wrapper's in their hand and you're thinking it's right there. How do you not see that I've, I've busted you? And it's just, it's this extreme need to control. So they're going to do everything they can to make you think they're innocent after they've gotten in trouble or been caught doing something they shouldn't do. <clears throat> As kids get older, we notice things are, their, their property is always destroyed. It could be uh, shoelaces are always pulled out of their shoes and put back in. Their jeans are always picked at. Their clothing is always traded with someone else. It's, it's bizarre to me. Like my kid would go to school with one outfit on and come home with a different shirt. And I'm like, oh, I just gave it to so-and-so, but he never knows their name. Um, some kids have those maladaptive behaviors, which almost mimic like the OCD or sometimes the sensory autism type disorders where they'll just rock for hours and it's kind of a way of soothing them. <clears throat> they are not um, usually very good with younger children or animals. There are some kids who are great with animals. Um, usually I notice in our experience, it was the younger children and our child at an older age, 12, 13, 14, still played really well with younger kids. Part of that was a need to control them. Um, we did end up adopting his biological half-sister when he was 11. And I, I didn't know of these behaviors. Like I said, we hadn't had a diagnosis yet. So there were definitely some things I look back on and go, oh, so that's what he was doing at that point. And it's a lot of the manipulative behaviors, the <clears throat> psychoanalytic things that you'll look at now, and it'll be different um, behaviors that, and things that they say to kids. Um, sometimes they can rage over the smallest thing or being told no. Like you could tell them no over something you think is going to cause an argument. And it doesn't happen, but no, you can't, you know, have a banana as I'm putting dinner down on the table and an entire rage comes on for like what seems like no reason. Usually they're huge, lie they're huge stealers and they lie about it a lot. And it will be the silliest things. It could be a piece of paper. It could be, um, your money, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just someone else's. So they're going to take it, which goes along with their impulse control, which <clears throat> we'll see later how this diagnosis is often misdiagnosed because of the um, world around us wants to just say it's a poor impulse control. And if you just get that under control, then they won't steal or lie so much. Uh, usually there's learning difficulties that usually goes along with the executive functioning issues and what's happening or not happening along those issues. Um, abnormal eating patterns. You'll, I remember feeding a six-year-old two heaping plates bigger than I fed my husband. And like, it was never ending. He could just eat and eat and eat. A lot of kids will sneak food. I will forever find wrappers behind beds and doors and everything like that. And you're like, I don't even know where that came from. Long-term relationships, obviously they've been bounced from home to home to home. So there isn't an ability to really understand what, it, what is required of a long-term relationship and, and how they could hurt someone if they damage that relationship. I also noticed, and you may too, they'll come home and like, my friend, my friend, my friend. But if you ask them the friend's name, they don't know their name because that would require them to like show compassion and attachment to this person in, in their world. That is what it would feel like. So they just move from friend to friend. <clears throat> the uh, preoccupation with literal nonsense or the questions or the incessant chatter, I 
have said a million times that one of my adopted children, I'm like, she just never shuts up. Like it just never stops. It's noise after noise after noise. It's talking to yourself. It's, and my husband goes, just like our oldest, he drove, you know, he drove me crazy. And I'm like, that kid spoke and you understood what he was saying. This one is just saying something to hear her voice. And it's one of those, like, you don't under, you don't realize how much is wearing on your nerves, even when you're just trying to cook dinner or whatever. And then in the end, we as parents appear to be these unreasonably angry and hostile people when really we're just so overwhelmed with all this stimuli that is coming at us from these children that appear to be doing nothing. And it, it just, it, it does make you infuriated. So those are things that we typically see, we kind of address. I think, Amy, do you want to jump in on any of those with the older kids? I know you had some good examples. Yeah, I'm going to interject here if you guys don't mind with uh, a couple of questions that are coming in. And if this is coming up later in the presentation, perfect. But I just want to get it out there now. Looking at all the symptoms, um, people are wondering, this is a spectrum, correct? Um, our kids have had developmental attachment issues, but they don't rise to the level of inability to attach or manipulation or a lack of remorse. That is true. Right. Yeah. So a lot of these, a lot of these symptoms obviously are going to fall into other categories of other diagnosis and other things as well. Uh, these and, and that's also makes it what's really hard in trying to get the diagnosis of Brad is because a lot of these symptoms and behaviors could be many other things. I think what's important to look at when looking at these symptoms and trying to look at your child going, is this Brad? I, the most important piece is going to be looking at how you feel as the primary caregiver. Uh, for that child. I mean, obviously, if you're only fostering this child for three, four months, you may not ever see it. And especially if the biological parent is still involved, um, you may never, ever see this disorder. Where you're going to see it is when you're fostering long-term, when there is no other primary caregiver involved at that time other than yourself. And I would really look at it as what is going on that is causing yourself as the primary caregiver to say, why doesn't this make sense? Amy, Sorry. I don't know if there's anything you can do, but your audio is corrupted. Um, I don't know if you can go out and come back in or, um, but that's helpful. Thank you. Is this better? No. No. <laughs> Try to go out and come back in. Heather is, uh, or Beth, the other question that may be coming up later is if medications are helpful at all. I will take that one first. Um, I don't know for, I'm obviously not going to answer for Beth. Um, initially, I felt like um, before our diagnosis, we had him on medication for ADHD. And what I noticed with that was it at least gave me the ability to communicate with him. Really, it it was he then received the information I was giving him. He wasn't doing anything with it. He wasn't making any changes, but I could at least communicate with him and it didn't seem to be so squirrely. Um, since my son has gotten treatment, um, he's actually come back home. So he went away for treatment and came back home and he's a pretty cool dude now. Um, I actually enjoy him, which I couldn't say for the first nine or 10 years of our lives together, but he, I call it the cocktail. So we had a doctor at the facility or the place that he was at 
prescribed some medications that did help. And then he was able to kind of how I explain it to parents is their brains are like jello in a jar and, or jelly or something that's got some room in a jar and it just shakes around all the time. And so these medicines allowed him, his whole insides, his brain, his whole internal workings to calm down so he could start to receive the proper instructions and care and, and get the treatment and actually be able to receive the treatment and make a change. Also, he was willing to make the change on top of that. So I believe that sometimes medication can help if it's the right, what I call cocktail, um, which is just a mixture of medications this physician, the psychiatrist thought was what would help, which it did. And now we're pretty much off of all of them, but one, um, now that he's in a different place in his mind, if that makes sense. So like he's kind of gotten healing. And so now he doesn't need to calm so much. He's Heather, you, you are being thanked for your blunt honesty in the chat. So thank you. This, it's how, I mean, it's what we need, right? We're trying to figure blunt. this out. So thank you yes. for that. Yeah. Beth, do you want to add anything? That's kind of one of the things, just to comment quickly off of what Renee just said is, you know, we're here to talk about the elephant in the room and never, ever are we here to talk about negatively about our children specifically sometimes we can be really blunt and <laughs> we have to be. So please understand that we're not talking about our kids specifically. Um, yes, I do agree that meds can help, but keeping in mind that it is very rare that RAD occurs without other diagnoses and other mental health issues. So I think that's part of the other problem is that a lot of the professionals don't have specified experience with RAD and they're not specialists in it. So when they're trying to tease things out, generally our kids' first diagnosis is ADHD and they're trying to treat that. And oftentimes ADHD meds will make our kids worse. So I think a lot of it is finding a psychiatrist that understands the developmental trauma, including attachment issues, if not RAD, and also being able to tease out some of the other mental health issues that can be going on the majority of our kids are very likely dealing with anxiety. How could they not be? Right. And depression is likely a piece of it. As they get older, they could be on that mania spectrum. So there's lots going on. And if those other mental health diagnoses are not being treated appropriately, RAD is not going to, attachment is not going to happen until those are at least under control. Then from there, our child has to be able and willing to work on that attachment piece and work on what's going on. And when they're not either capable or willing, they have to be both, then that's not going to happen. And what, one of the things that we see is that first is working on attachment and really they're doing it all backwards. So hopefully that helps to answer that question as well. Well, and I did add in the handouts, you guys recently had a post of questions to ask when you're looking for a therapist who knows how to appropriately treat RAD and diagnose RAD. So if you're questioning that with your child, please look at that article of theirs um, before you go any further. Okay, go ahead, guys. Okay, and something else I was going to add to that um, comment is my son was first treated for learning disabilities and did this whole brain training. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it wasn't brain balance. It was some doctor where we lived, had this specialized computer program made exactly for what my child needed. 
And so we were like, oh, this is great. So we thought that fixed the problem. And then I started to see other symptoms. So a psychiatrist and a therapist said he had ADHD. So then we went there and I like to kind of think, if you will, that by checking all those boxes where how we kind of, you, you deduct, you just process a process of elimination if you don't have someone who's schooled in RAD. Um, and I know that uh, blog has some great topics, but I will tell you the biggest words you can say is how many RAD children have you parented? And if they haven't parented any, then I always ask how many RAD children have you treated successfully? And I want like numbers. I don't want, oh, I've heard of it because mm-hmm. everyone's heard of it that's in this kind of field they just don't know what to do with it if that if that helps any because can rad be mistaken for asperger's or being on the autism spectrum absolutely yeah a lot of times especially because there's a lot of sensory issues involved with rad and attachment disorders and so they mimic um those kind of autism and and there's a lot of there's a lot of similar symptoms a lot but one of the things that a lot of the diagnostic Um, people are not looking at is what is the early history and they're also not taking a lot of that parent report exactly and so that's that's a huge issue and that'll be something that we'll bring up a lot right right okay do I still sound like Darth Vader you do not no you're better okay good I wanted just to tap real quick on the parents looking hostile and angry I think that is a huge symptom to look for if you have a child that could possibly have RAD because when you're raising children from hard places and other backgrounds, whether it's autism, ADD, any of that, as a parent, you might have your moments where you're frustrated or I don't know how to help this child through this process. But really with RAD, what happens is as a parent, you even question yourself of is this a parenting issue? Because when you see that child go hug a complete stranger, but then will not hug you or allow you to care for them or your child. um, I remembered with, with our child, she would eat out of the trash. She would go to school and would rather eat out of the trash than eat the lunch or the snack that I provided for her because it was coming from me. That was considered a nurturing act. As me providing food for her, that was me showing her love, caring, nurturing. She could not handle that. It was too much for her that she would rather eat out of the trash. And then when questioned, why are you eating out of the trash? It would be my mom's not feeding me. Uh, And in reality too, I'm not sure if this is on there, but false allegations. That's the other huge thing with this disorder, and it can start at an early age because that's their survival skill that they had to learn. Uh, So if she wanted a Starbucks coffee, and I said, no, seven-year-olds don't drink coffee, then I was starving her, and she could make false allegations that I was not feeding her. And and that's where this disorder gets really scary and concerning is if you don't have a team of people that understand what's going on in your home, I know as foster parents, I'm sure, I know in Colorado, they, st- they stress on this. I'm not sure about other states, but in all of our foster parents training, it's not if you get investigated, it's when, because right. they teach right. us that these mm-hmm. kids come from hard backgrounds and that there will be investigations. But with RAD, 
it, it also goes a step deeper. I mean, they're making false allegations for many of these symptoms that are listed to gain control, to, for the chronic lying, for trying to uh, create the, the nonsense and create the chaos, whatever it is, this behavior you'll know, or these behaviors and symptoms, most of it you're going to know as a parent if you feel crazy and what am I doing wrong. And sometimes the allegations, like you're talking about, are just diversions. Like it will come out as soon as you've told them no to something, you know, or they think they're going to get in trouble for something like as did happen in our case. So, you know, it's just a, oh, she beat me. Clearly, I may have thought about it, but I never beat my child. So <laughs> um, anyway, we dig- I digress. So we'll go on to um, sometimes what it looks like. And these are very, I think, raw views of it as well, of family saying um, loving a child enough, Rat is loving a child enough to put up with the constant physical and verbal abuse for eight years. But when the child abuses another child you love, you have to prove them right and that you weren't for their, you weren't their forever family which is really heartbreaking because we don't go into fostering and adopting because we're just going to toss these kids from home to home. And then when you actually have to feel like you're picking sides, which isn't how you want to be, it's heartbreaking. I'll, as a personal story, my middle, my youngest biological son was 10 when we were going to adopt our uh, son. And he told me he didn't want him. He was a brat. He says this, he says that. And I said, oh, he's just a daycare kid. We used to laugh about that was our big joke. Um, he'll be fine. He'll be fine when he's in our home. And so then when our son went away, almost 11 years later, 10 years later, and it was time for him to come home, I wouldn't bring him home until that child who was then 20 said he was comfortable with it because I felt like I had not, I had chosen my younger son over my biological son in all the damage that was done. So that's something that, you know, fortunately for us, we were allowed to continue to be his forever family, but it does give you that feeling where you have to like, then say, well, you're, you know, it turns out they, you were right. And now they, you feel like there's another level of distrust being laid on the already distrustful nature of the child. And then rat is a bottomless pit of need. Um, Absolutely. No, no matter how much you give physically or emotionally, it won't be enough. Um, it's not really that it's probably not enough. It's that it's not being received. So none of it's being absorbed. So you just continue to throw all this love and emotion into a child who's never receiving it, never holding on to it. Um, and then uh, when, as a mom, you're completely spent and raw, they'll replace you and tell others that you never loved them or understood them. And that really, really hurts. Kind of like Amy was talking about, them going to hug another parent, or if you are no longer going to foster them and you see them interact with the next foster family, immediately you may see that they're attaching to this family, what appears to be attaching to the new family, calling them mom and dad. And you're thinking, I, I, what, what happened? Well, we didn't, I don't think we talk about that, but that's also kind of a red flag. If, if they're, that shows you that they're not able to receive your love, if they can just go from parent to parent and, and act like it's no big deal and not ask about their biological parents or you guys or anything like that. Um, I don't remember where Beth's going to take over. So I didn't want to overstep, but I do like, this is one of my, whoops, sorry. This is one of my favorite slides. I think I'm still on this one. Um, PTSD, secondary trauma versus PTSD, hugely mistaken. It's often over, uh, they're, they're in, 
often used interchangeably, but they're not. So a secondary trauma is when the individuals have expo been exposed to the people who have been traumatizing them or disturbing descriptions, traumatic events, things like that. Um, and they're inflicting the cruelty or, or others inflicting cruelty on one another versus the mental disorder when you develop after you've been exposed to the traumatic events and the chronic. So we always look at PTSD as kind of um, our war veterans and they have the PTSD. The secondary trauma is what we as parents seem to get the beautiful diagnosis of or the other family members because we're experiencing their trauma by what they're dishing out. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I'm describing that right. We're the recipient of, of their behavior. What'd you say? We're the recipient of yeah. their behavior. They are imposing trauma upon us. Right. So it's, it's different and you sh we always want you to know kind of the difference because treatment is different too. Healing from secondary trauma is different than healing from PTSD. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That sounds like a, a whole new training in itself because <laughs> yeah. we do a secondary trauma training, but I never thought about what it looks like compared to PTSD. Right. And because usually PTSD is, you know, the example of being in war or if you were um, accosted or, uh, you know, held at gunpoint, that's your actual trauma that happened to you. Whereas with the secondary trauma, we're being traumatized by individuals who were already traumatized and they're inflicting it on us in a in a way that doesn't really look like trauma so you don't understand that it's happening to you until someone figures it out for you that you're just I could be triggered by I'll be honest with you my oldest son is 24 now and he was also abused by our adoptive son and the minute he raises his voice I instantly panic and it's not yeah. because we fight or anything in our house it's because when he would raise his voice he was speaking out to try to get help for me and no one else in the family saw it. So then it all came back to me like, what's wrong with you? So yeah. it doesn't matter if he's excited or if he's mad, if he raises his voice like this, I, it triggers you. it's yeah. just a trigger. And it's so, it's weird. I had to learn that about myself in the last year that it's okay. If someone talks loud, it's not going to cause any issues for myself. You know, people understand now. So that's one of the I think one of the most random things that I noticed in my healing or my beginning to heal. This is interesting. Somebody says in the DSM, you can get PTSD from others describing a trauma to you or watching it on TV, though it is a secondary trauma. Correct. So that would be that like PTSD would be diagnosed as secondary PTSD or secondary trauma versus just you experienced it. So PTSD, so how they're going to, I don't get, I don't treat PTSD versus secondary trauma, but what they're going to um, work on with you as a PTSD pay, uh, person versus a secondary PTSD will be different in how they approach it. It's like, it's like treating attachment versus or attachment issues versus disorder. An issue is like, oh, my boyfriend broke up with me and I really thought we were going to get married. So the next person you date, you are keeping your distance, putting your guard up, and that person sort of earns your trust over and until you, they break down your wall. Within a disorder, the wiring is completely different. So you can't, they can't love, you can't love that disordered child enough. It can just keep pushing them away. Does that kind of make sense to the, those yeah. attached in? Yeah. 
and the, the, the two, do you see what I'm saying? Like it looks the same. It's both attachment. It's both PTSD, but the, the treatment and to help you get healing looks different. So risks for the family in it, obviously social isolation. You um, may start to notice that your friends, they just don't get it. So they kind of quit coming around or they feel like they've offered you all the help they can and you're not doing it, even if you are. Um, it becomes a safety risk. Well, back to the social isolation. So they quit coming around. And then you might go to the park and do stuff that you're a little afraid of what your child will do at the park to other children. And you don't really have a lot to talk about. I know a bunch of us parents say, we kind of laugh when somebody's like, my child didn't get on the Dean's list this month and it's, or, you know, this semester and it's the worst ever. And I'm thinking, has your child tried to kill you? Like, it's not the worst thing ever, but you start to not have a lot in common with others that you hang out with because you're experiencing things that people just cannot fathom. Um, the safety risk for everyone in the home can be the emotional safety, not just the physical safety. Um, it kind of goes where other people in the home, it, it causes depression. They try to not cause problems. We have a completely different um, term called glass children for the other children in your home that seem to be what we used to call the good kids, the easy kids. Um, they really need help, but you don't realize it. So you're looking right through them, trying to help the one that appears to need the most help. Correct. For those of you who aren't familiar with that term, you'll hear it often in child welfare. And if a glass child doesn't mean that your child is fragile. It means that another child needs so much of your attention that you look through the needs of the glass child, often our biological children, right? right? Because the, the needs of, of our children in care are so much more intense. And you might not realize that you're spending all that time. You may be taking care of a child who's raging for hours at a time. So the other children in the home go to their room. Well, that could be for three or four hours. And now they're not having their needs met by, a, by you. But you, I mean, obviously doing that is not of ill intent. It's, I'm not saying you're just, you know, mistreating your other children in the home. It's just something that happens because you're trying to protect everyone in the home. Um, there's always the risk for false allegations and potential criminal charges for anything. Like Amy said, she could feed her child, give her food, and she would dump it and say she wasn't getting lunch or whatever. I have heard of a child who literally would get out of the car and throw their lunch in the trash can outside of school and then say mom didn't give them a lunch day after day after day. Um, and now in the digital world, I am starting to hear where kids will say, well, my dad said I'm in a timeout for two hours because I did whatever, or my parents haven't fed me for four days. And CPS is coming out to the home because they're getting calls of, you know, abuse or, or neglect. And, and it's not so, but these children are able to say things a little easier because they're in chats and things like that. So it's another thing to look for and, and pay attention to. And when you have those false allegations and potential criminal charges, it's obviously you can lose your income. You can lose your job. If you have a job um, that is in dealing with children or where you have to have, you know, no criminal record, not even just as a foster parent, obviously these charges could cause you to not be able to be a foster parent again. So um, it can devastate a family rather quickly. It can cost you a lot of money very quickly if you need to hire an attorney and things like that. There's in the involvement with the juvenile justice system or DHS before a child is removed from your home. And then it kind of, then they're placed in a group home. And then that shows that their, you know, their adoption or their care has been disrupted. There's relinquishments, there's changing again. 
and then children continue that cycle just to the next family to the next family and pretty soon I think there is, there are some statistics about how many kids from the foster care system end up in prison and a lot of correctional officers will say oh now I see rad in the, the prisoners that I'm taking care of you know now they can see where oh I, and it's not called rad when you're adults, but they can see these characteristics and it's the cycle of the abuse kind of continues. In our case, I know my children's biological mom was mistreated in her home and neglected and abused. So she continued the cycle for six years with our son. Um, and then on a side note, not knowing what rad was, my son continued the cycle with his biological half-sister until she was three and a half or four when he went away for help. So even in a home that I thought I was providing the care and the nurturing and the, and the proper things for this baby. I mean, you give me a baby, how hard can this be? I'm super excited. I didn't know what was happening, you know, when they were playing together, whatever, what was being said. So even the, he was not physically abusive or sexually abusive. It was all mental, psychological and emotional abuse. And then I have a four-year-old who gets in trouble and tells me she's going to kill herself. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, where do you hear that? You know, where does that start? And then I, I learned later what he had been feeding into her. So it was, again, the cycle continued in what appeared to be our regular home. And then the PTSD, the other secondary trauma, those issues for the other family members in your home um, just become real. And especially like Renee said at the beginning in the therapies, COVID is really hard on families with kids from hard places because you don't ever get a break and you become the teacher and the mom and the, you know, sole income provider, whatever it is, and you're trying to work from home and be at home and have these kids at home. And so try to get therapy for yourself by all means, because that will be in helping your whole road to sanity. Uh, let me interrupt if you don't mind. Yeah. This might be a good question for you having had an infant. Um, it was mentioned that this can happen in utero. We have a twin that displays all of the behaviors that were explained, staring, no eye contact, etc. At what point slash age should we seek help? They are currently six months. Do it now. Do it now. <laughs> Do it now. Like I was just typing back to her. I'm like coming out of my seat. Okay. <laughs> love to connect with Jess. Um, having had a child come to me at that same age, I work in early intervention. I'm a case manager for that age group. Um, and I have a resource. I'm hoping that she's here locally. If she is, I have someone for her. So I, um, Renee, can you connect us later? Absolutely. But yeah, to answer that so that everyone else knows, yes, absolutely. Get help now. But you need to find someone who understands that attachment piece. Right. Writers are a um, qualified um, early, early childhood specialist for mental health who most of them are, I shouldn't say most of them, there are some out there who are very well trained and, and some of them work with the early intervention program. So um, yeah. So while we're on that topic, this let's is my talk birthday. about a little bit older than that. How can I get support at the psych level? We recently lost our psych and therapist that understood attachment disorders. Now the therapist and psych nurse are unsure how to help us and are actually afraid of my child and will not listen to my concerns. Go ahead, Amy. I, I, would, I would say um, you need to find new Move on. people right away because if they're afraid to work with your child, that's what the disorder wants. That the disorder's in control. No healing is going to happen. 
Um, we do have, again, I think Foster Shores shared the signs to look for in a good therapist. That's also pretty similar when you're looking for a psychiatrist as well. Um, definitely, if you don't feel that they're working with you as the primary caregiver, and by them being scared of the child, that is not a good fit. That is not a good fit at all. The adults in charge need to be in control, not the child. And I want to go back to the infant because ours, she never went home with her biological parents. She was in the NICU for a week and then went to one foster home before coming to us, not for lack of trying to get her right from the hospital. But at that point, the abuse is the, she was addicted to meth when she was born, the alcohol, the, the stress of the pregnancy, that's rewiring their brain. I mean, that's wiring their brain oddly when they're in the, in the womb. So definitely, as Beth said, in her early intervention, we were blessed to stumble across one of my older son's moms was it like Beth was in the in early intervention um, realm of our school district. And I, I didn't even know it existed. And she got us in as soon as we were able was, I think um, our daughter was 18 months old and was in the program till she was three. And really it gave me, um, it did help for sure, but it also gave me a perspective on what's, what's not normal or what is normal. And we were able to utilize their, their information going forward. So I was able to get lots of testing and lots of evaluations done um, to see what, was, what were her issues. Um, because she has her own basket of issues that didn't stem from her brother, but um, it was very helpful. The earlier intervention was extremely helpful. So I don't know, cause I'm not in Colorado. I don't know where um, you guys have earlier intervention services. But yeah, we'll connect her with Beth. I love this comment that came in. We got a baby at 15 months with severe attachment issues after a history of neglect. And we got her inter early intervention and she was able to attach to us. And now she displays none of the symptoms of RAD. Early intervention works. It does, yes. absolutely. Yes. And to answer the other part of that question, absolutely, attachment disorders can start in utero. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, she says, thank you. I think there was a sense of fear that it yeah. was us. We right. brought them home from the NICU for two weeks. The other twin is very different, makes mm -hmm. eye contact, smiles, engages. So grateful to be a part of this class. So in that case, she's taking them in for care and the, the, the medical professionals are saying it's parenting. parenting. Absolutely. Right. Well. It happens all the time, Absolutely. all the time. And you start to believe it's parenting because they act differently with different people. Right. What it is, is the, the people that are nurturing and loving them the most is who they're reacting to. That, so earlier when I, when I was talking about love, they, they seem like they have love and affection to other people. The reality is, is that is not genuine. It, it looks like they're loving the neighbor, the caseworker, the CASA. That is a false attachment. It's not, it's not a healthy connection. Okay. All right. All right. I On think this is where Beth will take over. Okay. <laughs> this is me. All righty. So now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the systemic failures, which I think we were already kind of starting to talk a little bit about. Um, it happens with everything, but some of the more professional ends of it um, are with the university and educational systems, DHS, Medicaid and private insurance, and our current therapeutic interventions. 
So starting with the university and the educational systems, what we have found is that training for therapists is obviously beginning at the university level, but the majority of those programs are not offering any if or very, very little attention to this disorder. So if from what we found, at least when talking with some local universities around here, they're giving maybe an hour overview of the severe end of attachment disorders. And that's all they're getting before they walk off and become a clinician. And so oftentimes we're finding those clinicians in our community mental health center. And that's where we are often turned to go because that's where Medicaid contracts. So when we go to those places, we're dealing with people right out of college that are making $20 an hour and they're often still being interned and they've had no training at all on attachment. So one of the things that we have found is that the only way to make progress effectively with RAD is to start training those professionals, which we are doing, and also going into universities and doing some trainings, but to really keep talking about it. And and a lot of it is that the professionals don't want to talk about it because they think they know what they're doing, or they know they don't, but they have no answers. And so they don't want to go there. That is really the scary part. And going back really quickly to um, the the person who's the nurse was afraid of them, she, you know, and you, you guys are saying you have to go somewhere else. She's saying, I would, I'm going to the only place that takes Medicaid, right? right. So that's your other issue. That's right. an issue. And, and that's really the foundation too of why RAD Advocates was developed was because we want to bridge that gap from what this disorder looks like in the home and for families and for the child to the professionals of what they're missing. Yes. Um, because if we can bridge that gap, then the professionals can develop a better treatment plan. I mean, we're not therapists. We, we, we don't have that background, but we have the background and the knowledge of what this disorder looks like in the home, what it does to the child, what it does to the rest of the family members. And we have to create that change somehow within our therapeutic system. Yeah. Somebody says, I'm told I can't diagnose RAD, that it must be done through assessments beyond my scope and practice, but then they come to me for treatment. Yes. Right. Like, A lot of us go for treatment before we go for any kind of diagnosis. And so again, there's so much backwards to all of this. Like how can, how can this amazing therapist treat a child when they don't know what really is going on? Granted, they're part of teasing that out, but they don't know if they're treating it right. If they don't know what's truly going on, if there isn't, it's just so convoluted. Um, I'm seeing here that one of the, the families is asking, uh, I apologize, about the engagement between the biological family and them. And I, that's part of my story, is that I recall vividly talking with our caseworker about my daughter's lack of attachment and my concern for that. And that every time she would go for a visit, I was starting over. And I called it detoxing. I would spend two or three days detoxing. Then we would hold our breath in hopes that Sadly, that there wouldn't be another visit that, you know, end of the week because it, it took her back five steps and then I would work hard for several days to get her back to what I call the baseline. We could never move forward when she was still having visits with her bio parents. They didn't last long. I understand why they have them. I get all of that. But these parents were repeatedly 
um, showing that they weren't capable or moving forward and they weren't doing anything to follow their plan. Why did it take six months? So that becomes a whole nother conversation and a whole nother issue. But one of the comments on here is talking about that and, and they're very right because every time we send that child to that visit, whether we're the one taking them or the cost is picking them up or whatever, we are physically letting them go. And in that child's mind, I can't trust you because you let that lady take me to that traumatizing environment. And then they brought you back. And then we worked hard for several days and then you let me go again. And I, I asked that question over and over again, how is this child supposed to trust me when I have to let her go and then I have to help detox her and, and help get her back to her baseline. So again, we have systemic problems and unfortunately we can't fix all of that, but we're doing our best to educate and communicate about what's happening in hopes that there are some changes down the road. Which kind of, you kind of just covered the whole Department of Human Services slide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just such a lack of knowledge and, and a lack of experience because they haven't lived it. Um, private insurance, and this, this goes back to another question that came in. Um, Medicaid and private insurance don't talk to each other. Um, the majority of our kids come with Medicaid attached, and there are many providers out there that don't accept it, and the majority of those providers out there that don't accept Medicaid are because of the fact that they are specialized and they are way beyond what Medicaid will pay them at a lower rate. So that becomes a trick, and um, we've even found that there are many specialized providers out there that don't even accept private insurance because it's a lot of work and a lot of hassle for them. So one of the things that I found, um, having both covered our daughter in Medicaid and private insurance, was that those insurances don't talk to each other. They have no idea what Medicaid paid for on the private insurance side, and private insurance has no idea what, or Medicaid has no idea what private insurance paid for. So therefore, when we needed a higher level of care, nobody knew what the other had been caring for, and each found their scapegoat of saying, well, you haven't tried enough which wasn't true. Right steps for each of them, which had already been covered. Correct. Correct. And I have to ask one of my girls to take the next slide because I have to go find a power cord. I apologize. Well, we can kind of, um, I'll take the first two, Amy, and you to take the next two because I think you have a little bit more experience with those two than I do. Um, but in my everything, uh, everything is in the way. So I apologize. Um, Evaluations usually use the reporting from the child who is disordered and dysregulated. So it's not going to be very accurate. And it's from a, a wiring perception that is askew. So they don't really understand what's normal and not normal. So reporting, just getting their information from them is not always enough. And then you should be getting evaluations where um, they're taking into consideration what you had to say and what's going on and your input, how things look differently in the home versus outside. With individual therapy, the disorder will mimic whatever emotions the therapist is working on. And kind of the need for uh, individualized RAD-specific therapy is because a ther you typically typically on a broad range, regular therapists are working to build trust with you and help you feel calm and comfortable enough with them to share things. And 
our kids are then controlling that therapist by being able to pretend that they have, you know, a bought into this therapist way. Um, when really it's, it's on a technical level, there's a part of the brain way deep down in the stem that needs to be worked on before you can work on the outside cortex areas of the brain. So you have to really have someone who can understand how to dig down in there and get to that. You want to go with in-home, Amy? Yep. Yeah. So in-home therapy, uh, this is usually offered through... No, Heather's going to have to take that. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. We have poor internet where I live. In, in, when you're doing in-home therapy, you have family members that are non-family members coming in, which causes the behavior and the disordered child to flip their behavior. So now they're putting on a show for this person who's not in their home all the time. Um, therefore, the, the people coming in don't see the same thing that the families see. It's kind of like in-home therapy is what it looks like when you leave the house. They become engaging and charming, and you don't. those people that are trying to help you aren't seeing what you're seeing. And then um, typically in our high, higher level of care facilities or residential treatment centers, hospitals, they're looking they're using what we always call the reward system. So again, the, if you do this, then you get that. And just because the kid doesn't understand the if then statement, they do understand that, oh, I want 12 stars. Here's what I have to do. They don't, they don't change their, um, they don't change their ways. They just go after that prize. Um, and so there's no, in, in those higher level facilities, there's no expectation of nurturing, nobody trying to attach to them. Um, therefore, the child's not triggered, which means for insurance companies, especially that they're regulated or for even the therapy um, facilities. Well, this child's doing well. He's regulated. He's great. He can return home. And then the cycle begins again, where now you've got them, you know, at the emergency room or you're seeking evaluations and therapy. And it just, this whole cycle continues because we're not treating it. We're not getting the proper interventions. We're just kind of going through the steps and nobody's putting matching all the dots and connecting all the dots. But is that a way for someone on the spectrum, particularly on this more severe side, isn't that a way for them to be a functional adult? To be somewhere where there's no expectation of attachment. I mean, you can be a functional adult and not be attached to anyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which we don't necessarily want for our children. Can you hear right? me? You're broken. Up. You're Darth Vader still. Am I still Darth Vader? Yeah. If you want to text okay. me, I'll say what you wanted to say. <laughs> no, but and I, I think was gonna. Go ahead, Heather. I think you know well enough. Talk about the um, how the foster care system accommodates the disorder. Oh yes. So, foster care system and, and their ability to accommodate this disorder is a child comes to your home, they're doing really well, then they start having problems, and then the foster care the uh, foster care system will pull them away from your home and put them in the next home. And they do this, what we call honeymooning, where they do really well for the beginning. And then once they start to show behaviors that a family is struggling with, then the system pulls them out and sends them to the next home. And so it does accommodate this, um, this disorder in that way. And you can, yes, there are children who can function without having real attachments, but they don't have, usually don't end up with a very good quality of life as far as having relationships and, and not continuing this cycle. So that's the reason we look for getting them the treatment if possible, because, and I did mention this cycle of treatment in the last um, slide, but the 
traditional therapy and then the in-home therapy, which sends you to the emergency room and then a, a treatment center and then back again because nobody understands that that's where the child feels calm. So right. this comment really helps explain that frustration. It says, I have a child who's been diagnosed with RAD, DHS insisting I get her retested. At this time, she's not been treated yet. I don't know what the new diagnosis will be. It's been over a year. They still want me to adopt. She's been diagnosed with PTSS along with others. Recently, she perpetrated on her younger sibling who also has re re recently moved into my home. I've tried to get specialized help. The pandemic is a huge hinder. I am traumatized. I don't even know who wants to address this that. mom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, uh, other people are asking, maybe you guys can answer this quick. Where can these parents go for support is, do you guys offer a support group just for rad parents? Where can they find support? We don't majority have a, of the, go the majority ahead. of support that we've found is, is in the underground groups on Facebook. Um, we do not have a support group. That is our specialty. So can you explain, I've, I've heard this underground world. Can you explain that a little bit? Like, what is that? Obviously now we see why there's a need for that, right? Um, how do people access it? There's legitimately a group on Facebook called the Underground World of Rad. And if you look, search for that, then you can join that group. Mm -hmm. um, we say the underground because it's, it's rad becomes something you can't before you have a diagnosis or even after you can't really talk about it to other people because you look insane. And then, especially if you're a foster parent, then sometimes the, uh, your ability to be a foster parent may come into question because these children aren't displaying the same behaviors. Um, there are ways to get help. We, we can advocate for families that are going through things like that. We have before, um, and trying to get the child the behavior or the therapy that they need, as well as work on advocating for the other family members, the parents and the other children in the family. So that's something we can do as well. Yeah. Is that coming up a list of what you guys do? Because I know you'll like, you can sit in on a family team meeting, things like that. Are you guys going to go over the things that you can do to engage we with can. these families? Yeah, we certainly can. I don't remember. Um, I have what everyone refers to as trauma brain right this moment. So I don't remember what the next slide is. I'm just talking when I see them. So, but we definitely can at the end, we'll definitely get through these. I don't think there's many more slides. And then we can talk about the services that we offer to help families. Um, but you can see right here, any foster parent that's dealing with these um, symptoms and, and behaviors can see that it looks a lot like attention deficit, you know, ADHD. It looks like anxiety. It looks like ODD. It does look like all these things, but it, it, it's kind of all of those things wrapped into one. And that's where you can't just treat one part of it. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder is actually what it can be called as they get older. Yes. Um, because we have that diagnosis as well. It's a subtype. Yes. yes. Kind of like Renee, you had mentioned that um, there was a question or a comment about um, a child who has been diagnosed with RAD and they're asking for another evaluation. Yes, the county is common. It's not a common. Okay. And I think our recommendation to that 
parent would be um, don't rush, don't rush the adoption, don't rush permanency. Okay. Um, so well, adoption in itself is triggering, right? Because absolutely. then, then there's it's a permanent trap yeah. as far as they're concerned. Yeah, and it will often up the ante with the child's behaviors after the adoption. Right. And then um, you're standing by yourself with no support. Right. Exactly. And and some we we put this on here for you know steps for the professionals things to be aware of is just kind of look at your family unit as a whole. So we're considering like the foster parents as the professionals looking in on what's best. You want to look at your family unit as a whole. Um, look at it from more than just the child's perspective because multiple times you'll find it doesn't make sense when you're looking at it from a normal perspective, but then the child has this completely different um, skewed impression of what's going on in perspective. Um, keeping in mind that many issues aren't a parenting issue, they're a trauma issue. It's, it's, it, it, I'll come up, I'll tell you my comment in a moment. <laughs> um, also, as you're fostering or looking to foster or being given a child, have empathy for the previous caregivers and, and the other family members that may tell you things and you may think, oh my gosh, they're horrible. But just remember, that could have been behaviors or things they were doing to protect the child, trying to protect the child from the themselves, the him or herself. Um, and then keep in mind while you're fostering and and going through adoption, if you do children that are from hard places, you may see a change in the behavior of your other children or in your family's and family pet behaviors. And just know that like you'll feel usually a little so crazy that all that's going on but if you start to notice and now johnny's acting this way and feet you know philo fido is you know peeing in the carpet those are things you need to stop and analyze for a minute like take note these changes are happening is this because we're being you know affected by a attachment disorder um, <clears throat> when you're making a long-term plan with anyone, definitely you want to assess what the family's felt sense of safety is. And we always put that in or quotations because it's not that the family's not safe where they are. It's we need to feel safe at home. You can have four walls around you and have all the safety you need. But if your heart and your insides and, and your head don't feel safe, that's what you're missing is the felt sense of safety. And um, just be observant from... A, pers a perspective, a professional aspect of judgment for what the child and the parent dynamic looks like. And just being aware of the things we talked about, not, we're not saying every single child is rad and going to be horrible or anything like that, but keep all these things in mind. So you're able to share with professionals what you're seeing and what you're noticing. And, and so you don't just sound crazy. You can bring up at legit, like, this is not normal. This is what I'm seeing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then um for parents that, sorry, for parents that the county did do an assessment or in the one case has done a reassessment, yes. now they won't show the parent, foster parent the results. Is that common and why? It's common. It's common. It's common because they don't want you to know what's in that report because it makes it hard to adopt that child. And there's oftentimes labels and diagnoses that are scary. And so I think our advice to you would be put your boots in the concrete and tell them that you're not willing to move forward without that report, without all of, all of the information in their file. And saying that doesn't make you information to the, to that family. And that is completely unfair and a setup, not only to the family, but to that child. Okay. 
Yes. But as a, when you adopt, you have the family history meeting. So that, would, that should come up. That's, that wouldn't come up in there necessarily. It doesn't always contain everything. Okay. So all reports, you need the, you need to have access to the whole file. Yeah. And there are many counties that will not share it. And I think that's where we have to put our boots in the concrete and, and stand for change. And if you're getting some counties, some states give you more information, read that information from the RAD perspective, not, oh my gosh, there's so much this child went through. It is exactly so much this child went through, but what is that going to manifest into in into your, your home? family? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we talked about they don't trust others. They'll have poor relational skills. Um, without effective treatment, they, they can be... Pr- you know, function in society. Absolutely. They aren't then usually not going to have the emotional or relational maturity that's necessary for healthy relationships as adults. So you may see things like having lots of children out of wedlock, not getting, you know, getting married and divorced and married and divorced, those, those kind of things. Um, it, it does become damaging when there's a parent child relationship because they don't know how to parent because they weren't given a good example deep down. Like it's not just in your core as a child from a rad perspective. And, um, if they can't resolve the issues, the traumatic experiences, and, and understand why they do the things they do based on those experiences, then they can't stop the cycle from continuing. And they don't have to go back. Personally, I don't believe, since I have a child who's been through the, the treatment and come out on the other side, it isn't about reliving every single experience the child went through, like you were beaten, you were this, you were that. It's going through the feelings and where they should have been treated properly and getting our, our child was put made his therapist brought up feelings and then I put my arm around him so he would then learn that this mom will help him this mom will protect him so it's kind of things like that but you have to have someone who knows what they're doing to do that so we now can take more questions because I know we started to get off <laughs> it's, easy to- <laughs> it's very easy you guys People are disheartened. I think it's it's yeah. it's hard, and they need a little bit of hope. Is is there hope? Can this be rehabilitated? Yes, it can be with the proper services. With the proper services, and if they're able, they have and to also again be willing. willing. Um, and the younger they are, the less willing they have to be because they're going to be able to because you're gonna it's gonna incorporate parenting techniques with the rest when they're older it has they have to they have to win it they have to buy in somebody said for us we had a rad kiddo that we didn't even know that they had evaluated and diagnosed with rad until the new therapist slipped up and said i wasn't sure about the previous therapist's diagnosis of rad until i saw this current behavior when brought up to the team, they all acted oblivious to knowing about the diagnosis at his di- and his diagnosis existed for eight months before I knew it, which is really, really unfortunate. The services could have been in place that entire yeah. time, but I think a lot of times when it's not shared, it's for fear that no one will take the child. But really, if, if foster parents knew in advance and had supports to access they could foster rad children successfully. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a systemic issue because our, 
our social workers don't have just five kids they're working with. They're literally, some of our counties are just so overwhelmed, they're just putting out fires. And so they may not even have looked at the file or so what RAD, so I can tell you the number of social workers that don't know what RAD is. So Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do with it and it's just in there. Even from, I looked back at our file my child is now 17 and I went back a couple of weeks ago and I was like, bingo, there it is. Like it wasn't called rad, but it was diagnosed as something else. And it was like, gosh, if I'd have read that, but I did read those for forever. I read all those files trying to get to the bottom of it. And sometimes you have to read it from a different perspective. Yeah. And it's not called the same thing. It, it, it can be called different things. And I and, think there's such little knowledge about rad in itself and it, and it's not against our, our human services system, the people in there want to help, want to, want to do good, want to help these kids find their forever home and whatnot and have permanency. But there's also what they are and are not allowed to talk about or, and that is what's hurting our families. And I think in the last training that we did for you, Renee, we asked for a show of hands in if, if families had, had this transparency that we're looking for and that we're asking for with these diagnoses, with these behaviors and, and some of this stuff, if they had known it, absolutely. They would take more kids. Absolutely. Kids. If they knew there was a diagnosis because they know they were being supported and not being um, not transparent. And so I think that's a huge piece of this is they've got to get to be to a point where they can be transparent and more supportive in order for stability. I'm glad you brought that up because I never want it to seem like the big bad county, right? Like the point of a foster source is that we do, we work very closely with all of the counties, the CPAs, the state, and we know that it's, this is hard, right? This is a, a big systemic monster and every, I mean, people are trying their best. Um, Someone says, how do we fight the systemic issue in the system of our right to know what's in their file? Well, we're working on that. So there was <laughs> legislation a couple of sessions ago that passed. It is law now in color. I'm talking in Colorado folks that um, allows foster parents to know a lot more about the history of the child, including reasons for previous disruptions. A lot of times that does not trickle down to our caseworkers and they're not aware of it. Um, and that's unfortunate because again, the more we know, the better we can foster. Amy, do you want to take that? Amy, you want to take that? Well, she, what was it? You know, how, how do we, how do we stand up with our right to know what's in the file? I think a lot of it is really learning how to also work the system. And part of that would be obviously talking with your cert worker and explaining to your cert worker why you need this information so you can make better parenting decisions and and if the cert worker isn't listening, then go to the guardian and light him. Keep going until you are heard for that child. You are that child's visit, biggest advocate. I have uh, to agree. You have to kind of be a pest, right? You have to yes, self-invite yourself to the family yeah. team meetings. That's what I did. You have Absolutely. to show yes. up at court whether you're invited or not. Become a court respondent. You know, you can say, I'm concerned. Talking with the therapist, letting the therapist know, I don't know how to help this child if I'm not getting access to all that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and 
the, the real piece is, is foster parents of speaking up when there is stuff uh, coming up for a bill or legislative that creates that change. Uh, I know Foster Sorts has been very active in that. Rad Advocates is trying to be active in that in other states as well, of trying to get it almost a universal foster parents bill of rights. Yes. And, and that is something that has to happen. Um, and, and hopefully with, with conversations like this alone, this platform is the beginning piece of that. We are talking, we are yes. educating, and, and this is a start. Right. We often hear with uh, particularly our newer foster parents, I don't want to make the caseworker mad. Right. Um, and underlying with There's that a is fear. a fear that they would move the child, right? There's a lot of fear. Right. That guys, you are that child's voice. You know better than anyone what supports that child needs. You have to be the squeaky wheel. And you can ask questions without upsetting them. And then when they give you an answer that isn't great, you can just ask another question. And sometimes the best thing I found was to ask the question and then just shut up for a minute. I know you understand that's hard for me to do. And they had to like stumble to come up with what they were going to do. What, what, what? And so I just say, well, what, what can you do? What will you do? What, you know, those kind of things until they start to just break down and, and come up with idea. Yeah, Michael sums it up perfectly here. He says, because I ran group homes before fostering, I have the mindset of two major things. Number one, I want information and I ask for it. I explain that I have a culture in my home and must make decisions that will be in the best interest of this child as well as my current guys. Number two, I need to be treated as a professional, period. I am a parent, but I am an integral part of their lives and I would argue of the care team. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I would agree with what he's saying is that we're oftentimes not seen as a part of that team, but that's where we have to learn to advocate more. And so I think that's going to be my, my shameless plug for us as RAD advocates is that's part of what we're here for is to help guide you through these kinds of things and help empower you so that you can be the best advocate that you can be. And we don't know it all, but we're learning and we can help bring up some ideas on what to do or how to go about things if you're feeling stuck. Um, Carrie states that she has that fear. We can help empower her. Yeah, we, and we yeah. can help give them ideas on how to go about some of these conversations if they don't know how to navigate them. Uh, this is a great question. And Buffy, I think this is probably different in each county. She says, is it our right to go to family team meetings? I've been told you have to be invited by bio parents. I'm not sure. We never were invited until I just asked if I could come. Um, what do you, you guys actually do sit in on quite a few FTMs. We do. Is that at the request of the foster parent or the bio parent? Both. Okay. Uh, depending on the family that we're working with, they could be both. Do I still sound like Darth Vader? A little bit, but not as bad. Not as bad. I think it's your internet, Amy. Well, one yeah. person says, one thing that scares us is the power of the child's caseworker. If our current child is reunified, could the caseworker put a black mat on a file preventing us from getting future placements? No. I mean, I, I, I will answer that. And I know that we have some caseworkers in here today. So if you'd like to um, answer, go ahead. But ab absolutely not. Um, you, you will never be blacklisted for, for uh, advocating for your child. Um, and I mean, they, they need you. They need foster parents. 
um, if, if that has happened to you, I, I am very sorry for that experience because that definitely should not be the case. Uh, let me see what just came in, came in here. Former caseworker here and current certified treatment foster parent. I've seen foster parents blackballed for all sorts of reasons. That's really sad. We've worked with families who have been, and, and again, this isn't just to talk negatively about caseworkers because we know where their hearts are and what what brought them to what they do. And we appreciate them very much, much like our children. We're, we're not here to talk negatively about them, but we have many families who have been told outright by their caseworker that if, if they send, you know, decline continued placement with this specific child, or if they don't adopt that child, they will not place any more children in their home. And I mean, we have hundreds of stories of families who talk about this. So it does happen. The problem is, where is the accountability? So I think that's, again, is where we can help them. Go to their supervisor. Go to their supervisor. Go to the top of the, of the department. Yes, I, I agree. And that's okay, guys. A lot of times we hear, we almost feel like, oh, we're tattling. No, the county has told us over and over, it is absolutely okay for you to go to the supervisor. Yeah. Um, can you guys explain the difference between having attachment issues and rad. Amy, you want to talk about that one? You do a good job of explaining. I, I don't, we'll see if we can hear. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Am I sounding weird? You're fine. Okay. So an attachment issue is more on the mild spectrum. That's a kiddo that had some trauma happen to them that created uh, something that allows them not to trust. So whatever an experience that happened to get them into the foster care system, that's obviously going to create a trust issue for any foster child. It's scary. They've been removed, whatever that was. That could be a trust issue, which could lead to an attachment issue. I'm scared now to attach to this person because when I attach to people, they're taken away from me, whatever it may be. That's more of an attachment issue where the child needs to just work on trust and trusting people around them. More of a disorder is going to be how the brain developed. So for an attachment issue, the brain was already developed. The child could have been attached to their biological family. Everything could have been fine. Doesn't mean that there wasn't trauma, but they could have been attached and they just experienced trauma, which now leads to an attachment issue. Now I have to work on trusting people again. The disorder is going to be more of that developmental piece. It was the brain development in that early years of, of the attachment cycle being so crucial for the foundation of them moving forward. That's going to be a disorder where enough love, trust-based therapies, all that is not going to fix a disorder <clears throat> where, <coughs> excuse me, an attachment issue, those specific therapies will address attachment issues on a disorder. It will actually trigger them and make it worse. I hope that kind of helps as my neighbor started mowing the lawn. <laughs> we, we cannot hear it. We actually have some, like I said, some case insert workers on today. And one of them just told me that this class has been great and that you guys are able to explain complex information in a way that parents can understand. 
please give them a follow on Instagram and on Facebook. How else can they reach out to you and for what types of services? So, yeah, please definitely reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram. You know, as you know, social media, if you get more followers, <clears throat> you create more awareness. And that's really what we need around this disorder is uh, we're not doing this to villainize children. <clears throat> we are doing this to help children and to create a change for their lives. Uh, part of our services is we do everything from attending uh, family team meetings to residential treatment center staffings to IEP meetings to even just working with foster parents or adoptive parents on developing a plan. Um, if it is going into adoption, how can we help you uh, have a treatment plan moving forward with your family to set your family up to success. Uh, <clears throat> we, if, if you go on to our website, radadvocates.org, uh, you will see a list of services that we also provide. Yeah. And if you follow us on social media, just FYI, Facebook is there is a space between the a, RNA and the A&D before in RAD. Yeah, people were asking what the social media handles were. Maybe you guys can type them in the comments as well. well. They're also on the screen. Can you still yeah. see them? Yeah. You can see them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you go to our website, there's links to them. So that's the best way to find it. Great. All right. Do you have a list of therapists who know this diagnosis and treatment plan, especially any who take Medicaid, the big M? We do. However, it's really hard to find the ones to get Medicaid. But again, if you contact us, we can help you navigate how to get to that therapist without Medicaid okay. and, um, okay. and navigating the system. That's the big thing that we do is we'll help you navigate the system to get the services that your child needs. This has been so, so helpful. You guys, I think this is one of those trainings where people would be happy to sit on for another three or four hours, like <laughs> but I it's said, Saturday it's and it's gorgeous in Colorado. So we're going to go enjoy our day. Lindsay's popped back on again. Huge thanks to Lindsay, who, by the way, for those of you who may not know, was one of the interns last year and she was so dang good. I had to hire her <laughs> so I wouldn't awesome. lose her. Um, so thank you again to Lindsay and all six of our, our interns are, we have board members listening today. I really appreciate all of you being on here. Uh, Lindsay is now going to walk everyone through uh, getting your.